G'day everyone, Craig from People With A Passion here and today I'm joined by Sammy Leone who actually runs Boss Boxing and he's here to talk about youth, boxing and culture. How are you mate? Yeah, good thanks Craig, yeah. I just want to acknowledge the tribal people of the area that we're in yes. and um, identify myself as a Gadawa and a Bachelor man uh, from my grandparents, my grandmother and grandfather's uh, side so I acknowledge them sides and also um, my connections to the Pacific Islands and po Polynesian heritage uh, through my father who's Tongan and um, my ancestors who come from Vanuatu. Yeah. yeah, so so that's important to your culture and, and Australians, if we can use the word, have adopted the welcome to country and what you've done there is is recognising that you are in, uh, in a, a, another more or less clans area and respecting the country. So do you want to speak to that part of your culture, the, the, the significance of country? Yeah, uh, so if we put it this way, uh, the reason why I do that, there's, there's a, a welcome to country and then there's an acknowledgement. But um, the reason why I, I do an acknowledgement or I acknowledge the tribal people of the area is that because it's just like, um, you know, if you were to go to someone's house, knock on, what would be the process that you'd follow? You'd knock on the door and then what, what, what would happen from there if I knocked on your door? What, what, what would happen there? The, the, the first thing you're going to do is saying, can I help you? What are you here for, more or less? And then, then you'd be introducing yourselves and shaking each other's hand as a, a sign of respect. So, so we shake hands as a sign to say, you know, that there's no weapons in my hand. That's where it came from. Yeah. So that's basically like, so uh, that process is a cultural process, but it's a respectful process as well. You need to, before you go to someone's house, identify who you are let them know who you are and, and that whether or not you come with good intention or bad intention. And then the owner of that house or the person who stays there will either say, oh, don't come in. Yes. We don't want that Avon today. Or if they <laughs> want to buy some Avon, they'll invite you in. That's it. <laughs> so interestingly, the term country, when it's used in welcome to country or acknowledging country, is it different to what we perceive as our country as well? Because we look at Australia as country, but culturally country was your your area that your clan or mob more or less um it's like a boundary which which when you stepped into that area you'd gr be greeted and, and ask either to pass through or or actually be welcomed yeah so the connection to country country is your uh it's it's a pl like it's your place where your ancestry comes from so your your well, if your family is born to a particular area, you have a connection to that and that, that geographical, you know, like place. So it could be that, yes. you know, that piece of land or whatever. And, and culturally, uh, the way that I see it, and this is only my view, other people might have different views mm -hmm. and, and that's, that's fine. But um, we're born or we have an authority over a particular place of land and it's it's like a law of the land. Yes. So if you come from that particular area, you have an authority to be there. It's like if if you have a permit that says this is okay, this is Craig's house, mm. you know, and and you've signed, you purchased this house, and this is your place. You have a an authority over your place that you have a connection to, which is your house. Yes. And culturally, if you're born into an area, um, and you have tribal connections to that, you also have a spiritual connection mm. 
to the to the animals and the the land and the that area. So so culturally, it it really comes down to respect. So respecting your connection with everything. Yeah, basically, yeah. And um, once you learn more about uh, who you are and that identity, it, it it creates strength within you. So I, I'm on on a journey at the moment where I'm learning more. Mm. Um, I've got other family members that have been on that journey a, a long time before me, but sport stopped me from pursuing that, and mm-hmm. now I'm sort of just so to catch up a bit. So you and I have connected through a friend, and uh, he has a, a lot to say about you and the work that you're doing in the community. And he said that, that you've been boxing, you've done amateur boxing, and you've had a couple of pro fights uh, here in Australia, and you've actually won a state title. Do you want to talk a little bit about your boxing, and then we'll go into your youth work and the importance of culture? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, that's fine. Um, so uh, with my amateur boxing, I had close to about 90 odd fights as an amateur um got some titles uh you know the aim was to go to the olympics and stuff like that um but i didn't get that chance um were you close i was in a development squad okay. um at the australian institute institute of sport down in canberra so i had a go at that mm. but didn't uh, i had some mates that went through but yep. I didn't quite make uh, make the cut with that. That would have taught you a lot, though. That experience of being involved in an AIS program. Yeah, yeah. It was. Um, there was a lot of learning out of that. I learned a lot about myself, and also um, uh, it it opened or broadened my perspective of boxing, especially as an amateur. Mm. And the doors opened up from there, so I was able to learn a little bit more and then get some more experience by um, getting around and going to other gyms and finding out a little bit more about it and and um, I progressed from there. Yeah, who, who were some of the coaches that were working with you down there, do you recall? Uh, yeah, uh, so we worked under the program of Bodo Andreas. So he he um, he was German and he came over, he, he had trained like maybe South Africa or some of those other um, countries and then he came over, he was the national, like the head coach for, for the Australian boxing squad. Yeah. And... Um, so he developed a program, and the the person who was the head of our program, his name was Don Abnett, and um, he was a NTID, which is the National Talent ID uh, boxing coach. So you got to learn from some uh, people who are well-versed and skilled in the art of boxing, and uh, I imagine that now you've, because of that experience, that's something that you're able to impart to people within your your actual current program. So that was your amateur. So you had the 90 fights. What was your record in those fights? Are you able to share? Um, yeah, the record wasn't too crash hot. Mm-hmm. But but in the amateurs, you look at it, it's like a learning. So yes. I think I probably won maybe about 60% yeah, of, okay. of the fights. Yeah, so it's better than losing a lot. <laughs> a lot yeah. more. But what, do you, what does that teach you when you, you say, because that's obviously an approach of um, you understand you're in a process. So what does that, teach you every time you have a fight what are you looking at when you lose a fight what sort of things are you getting from it yeah so so when you lose it it's about okay what's happening what what am i doing wrong or what is happening for me in in the coaching aspect of things and then i think the the ais training at, at an elite level with you know like other guys that were current 
they, they, they were former Olympians and, and Commonwealth Games reps. So at that elite level, you realise, wow, there's a lot of stuff here that I'm not doing. So mm. I think just being a part of that program was able to open my eyes up to it and go, oh, wow, there's yeah. a whole new world out here. And, and I wanted to sort of grasp grasp that and find out a bit more about that. I think it's like anything, there's mastery at, at every level and people go into things not realising how much is actually involved. And I know with uh, sports that I've had experience with is once you go down that rabbit hole, you come to realise there's so much to learn, which it keeps you interested. So you're constantly learning it and that's the opportunity of sport, which we'll come to later and why that's invaluable, um, you know, for young people to actually embrace some sort of activity or, or sport. But uh what age did you start your path on, on the journey of, of seeing or pursuing boxing? Yeah, I started late. Um, so I was 20 mm-hmm. when, I, when I started and I, I boxed for maybe about 12 to 15 years, something like that. Yes. yes. As far as uh, your youth goes, what was Semi Leone doing when he was younger? What sort of things were you getting up to? Um, so some of the things I was doing... Uh, uh, how, how young are we talking? Well, like, how long, young do you feel is relevant in, in the sense of what uh, ages do you feel you were moulded into the man you are today, perhaps? Yeah. What, and what, what influence was there? And okay, yeah. Good and bad. Yeah. So I think um, I had a really strong grounding from my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, my mum, she wanted the best for us in education and stuff. And she was only like, our family grew up, we were only on, on a pension. So mum was on a pension and my father and we went to, she put us through private schooling yes. on a pension and she actually paid our way through, but you know, made payment plans and she put us through Sacred Heart Primary School over at Sandgate. Yes. And we were the only like um, Aboriginal family that were there and then there, uh, another family came along. So being in that environment, we, we learned to be in both worlds. Yes. And then from time to time we'd have, because of our kinship system and our families, from time to time, people would come. They'd stay with us, and then at times they'd come to schooling. So, or school, come to school with us, and then they they be so we'd have to be uh, like the interpreters because people will come up and say they might yarn and say one thing. Oh, oh, this guy said pretend. What does that mean? And then I'll speak to him in language and go, yes. Ah, he's saying he's gammon. Yeah, he's, okay. he's not so. So you're uh, a bit that, of a translator for culture when yeah. you had kinship. So do you want to explain kinship? Yeah, kinship is um, so. Kinship is basically you'll have your direct siblings. Um, so you, there could be a family, could be five siblings, and there, there might be five women and one, one um, like brother. Yes. And so, in a in a cultural family setting, you would have each of your aunties like so you would call them an auntie but they would be a mother figure yes so each of their so each of them you'd call them mums and then then the other brother he'd be your 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 father mm-hmm. figure you'd still call them aunties but they have that position yes so any one of them can sort of you know like uh rear you up or bring you up and and give you um, knowledge or you know discipline you or stuff yes. like that and then all of their direct children would be classed as your brothers and sisters so rather than your immediate uh, family, you you have an extended family, which is basically your, all, all of your other brothers and sisters, and it's classed in that way. So that's the reference to kinship, that it's broader than just your immediate circle of, of yeah. uh, the family you're born into. So 
and, that, that's and with that it, it extends further as well because then you have um, other extended family so you might have second or third cousins mm -hmm. or whatever and uh, we hold that genealogy once you once you know who's who we're really strong about that it's what keeps us yeah strong as, as a family unit yeah so you had the opportunity you say you described it being both worlds because obviously your mum put you into private schooling she saw value in in actually doing that which presents an opportunity that certain indigenous kids may never have had or could not have that opportunity what a did that opportunity do for you and what was the adverse effects of being in in a system where you were initially the only indigenous family at that school yeah so there were there there were um it was twofold so it was positive there was uh a lot of negatives and having to adjust so mm -hmm. and adapt but one of the positives is um some of the just just being able to maneuver a lot better within in the mainstream world and understanding that but with that being um being basically isolated or segregated in in the that schooling community they were very like uh the racism was there, but yes. it was subtle, yes. so kids wouldn't even be aware. It, yeah. It's something that was sort of. Um, but is that because you're you're the minority in that situation, so you become aware? But the subtlety, they just don't. They're just going about their business, but you're noticing the subtlety of things that are saying you're different. Yeah, definitely. And then and then being older now and and reflecting on it, um, just seeing the. The way that the system was set up, it, it, it was not, um, it was not inclusive of our culture sure. as much. And towards the end, in in high school, it started changing because there was a shift in, in the way that um, First Nations people are viewed, and then there was more sure. of a celebration of the culture. Yeah, sure. So you've seen a shift in that. So you think that understanding wasn't there initially but slowly that's evolved you're in the education system helping indigenous youth do you want to speak to a little bit of that work now while we're on the topic of education and that shift that you've actually seen um obviously there's more work there to be done and i, I i'll just inject my two bobs worth here is one of my things that i think australians have failed to do is actually teach truths around indigenous culture genocide things that occurred and and while some people go oh we shouldn't pay the price of of something that's occurred in the past like that our ancestors have done and people should just using the word like an assimilate i've heard people say that it should just assimilate i just liken it to like imagine if another country say for example china were to walk into australia today and take over the country do you think that australians are likely to just say okay well let's all just assimilate because it the, that concept of stepping in someone else's as shoes is important. So my thoughts around it is education is a pathway um, to increase understanding so that we can actually see other people's perspectives. And uh, how do you feel the education system has evolved to start to do that more? Yeah, uh, so, so there is a shift there. Um like in the state curriculum, I know there's certain standards and and they're trying to embed uh, like cultural perspectives into that. I work in um, independent education, so uh, we're more free to be able to move and adjust and do things in an independent way. So we do things differently. Um, 
over over at where I work, but I'm working with the school to build up some of our uh, cultural practices. And but but we want to bring it and embed it into the 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 environment, so the whole school and and that that's that involves things like um, we have supervision. We'll mm-hmm. do group supervision, but we're we're um, employing Aboriginal uh, psychologists to come in and do use cultural frameworks when we when we do our supervisions so that's you're, been really helpful so you're working across a number of environments and we'll come to your boxing business a little bit later in the podcast but you're uh, seeing the importance of giving cultural experience to the youth that you work with as a person that sort of went through a school system uh, that you know, was was private and predominantly Anglo-Saxon, if I can use that to describe it. How how do you feel the connection to culture helps Indigenous kids learn and understand the world that they're growing up in? Yeah, it's. I think it's a very important thing. Um, it's, it's like anyone. If you know who you are, you know, and you know where you come from, you know, you should know where you're heading in life. And um, like I said earlier. I didn't have so much, like I, I grew up around our culture, but a lot of my older brothers, they they started cultural groups, dance troops and things like that and, mm-hmm. and em, embraced the culture and the language and uh, they're, they're doing all of that stuff and have been for many years. And um, I've got a brother, he's currently working down in Melbourne Uni and um, he's, he's uh, you know, like uh, down there and he's heading up a uh, program where they're re re um or they're collecting all of the languages yes and song and dance and stuff like that from all the cultural communities and they're storing it up in a database and it's going to be held by the uni so they're doing all that archiving of mm. the language and because there is concern that the culturally languages are being lost because they're not being passed on to indigenous youth does that make sense yeah and then I think the the way that the system is geared up, it, it's it's um, anti or, or you know like uh, we look at the history of of um, since colonisation, mm-hmm. and you had things like the White Australia policy, and then also Darwinism, and they had the casting system that they brought in. It was part of genocide in, in Australia, and that was about breeding out the yeah. like the, the Aboriginal population by, and and they put in strategically casting systems and things like this, and then. The mission systems, and I mentioned earlier, my grandfather was Garwa and my grandmother was Butchela, but they both got removed from their country, mm. and then they got sent to Aboriginal missions, and if any of them spoke their language, they'd be punished. Yeah. And um, so all of these things, if you look at all of those factors, it's still embedded in this in society today, just in a subtle way. And you look at all of the interventions and all the things about controlling First Nations people. Um, that that's where we're at today in in Australia. So it's unspoken. And and you mentioned some some people say things like, "Oh, what what about something that happened? You know, how can we be responsible for something that happened over two hundred years ago?" But I look at it in the way that, uh, okay, if we, we need to acknowledge that, and that there hasn't been much of a shift since then. If you look at the way the government is set up mm. and First Nations people not even having a voice in the constitution today yeah. and things like that. So so that's what I was saying earlier is like, like I've probably heard some of what you've just said there, 
but some of that is news to me and it actually annoys me to think that we're not taught this stuff in schools because I think it gaining an understanding of the decisions that are made and how they've impact you know first Australians as you say that to me is is where solving a lot of these issues that we have around indigenous culture and racism and things like that actually start is is by educating people on what's happening because if you put yourself in the shoes of you know your grandparents and just say well what if that happened to me what if that was my experience that I'm told you cannot speak your language or you're going to be punished and and who know like I don't begin to imagine this is what should be taught like what is that punishment what does that what's punishment mean and they probably told you and shared you the stories so you can speak to the stories if if there is an example of what that meant or or what's happened to others that spoke their language but but that's the importance of actually getting the language as well and recording it so so we've almost so here we are trying to protect the language and the dialects of of the the different uh, groups and clans within Australia but the system created a scenario where those languages are being lost. Yeah, I think, and it'd be good for, I think, the viewers at home to maybe, I can share a quick story about my, uh, um, my grandparents and my mother. Yes. And um, so my grandfather, when he got removed, he was born in Lawn Hill, and that's like a station, a cattle station. But he was a Gardawa man. He got removed because he, he hunted down one of the sheep. So... You know, in a cultural way, you, you go bang, you, you you get a spear a meal, take it back, share it, cut it up, share it with the family. Mm. And he did that. He got punished for that. And he was only about 13 or something like that, 12. But in our culture, he was classed as a man because he went through ceremony and initiation. Mm-hmm. But he got removed and he never saw his family again. So he ended up in Palm Island, then he got shifted to Sherberg Mission where he met my grandmother and she also got removed from her country, Butchula, and that's Gari. Gari is Fraser Island, but we call it Gari. Yes. Um, so that happened there and then my, my mother was born and, and her sisters and siblings and she's still alive now, she's 66. Yes. But she's still shared the stories of the control that was in the mission and she... For her to leave, she ended up running away, and she escaped when she like when her father died because she had no more. She didn't want to hang around. Her mother died when she was about ten, and then her father died when she was maybe seventeen, fifteen, something like that. And then she told me a story about how she escaped, and she had to hide and um, got a lift and snuck in the back of a car with, with some of the men going to work. Mm. And she said, "No, they know that they'll know that we're going to go south, so we'll go north." Because everyone gets caught in Brisbane or going to the big city, so they went sure. the other way, and then from there that sort of happened. But just all so of this is the amazing thing is you're telling me this story. That's the sort of story you'd you'd hear, uh, like coming out of the Holocaust or something in Germany at the time of the Second World War. This is Australia, and your mum's sixty six years, so we're not talking that long. This it's is not- what people have had to do and this is the stories that I think need to be told because that would be like me being in a situation where you know hearing the stories and being somewhere where I had to escape my family more or less and make a life for myself but we're in the same country and and I think I've got to share another part to that um so our, our parents worked and and have you have you ever heard of the term stolen wages 
I haven't heard stolen wages, but I've obviously stolen generation. Yeah. Everyone knows about, it, but I can imagine stolen wages makes sense. To explain it. Yeah, so I'll be really brief with that. Um, so my mother, my grandparents, and my mother. She she's sixty six now. They worked and 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 a percentage of so a percent uh, they they got a small percentage of their wage. So they would work the same as any non-Aboriginal person, but because they were part of you know, like protection under the state, all of the money that came in, it, it would go to a, a like a, either the protection officer or someone there in charge, usually a police officer or someone like that, and then the wages would be uh, divvied up and then, but they'd work the same as everyone else, they'd do the same hours or even longer shifts, and they'd only get a small percentage, which, which was something like 10% or something. Mm. The rest of their funds went to a, um, it's called a, um, it was called a benevolency fund, Aboriginal Benevolency Fund, and that money were equated to in excess. It was in millions, close to almost billions of dollars, that was in the, held by the state in a trust for Aboriginal people, which my grandparents never saw. And now they're fighting for that some of that money back. My mother got a small a pittance of, you know, mm. she might have got a payout of maybe fourteen thousand dollars in mm. in it in relation to the amount of work and the money, that, that was a payout that the government did and they said, okay, we're gonna uh, compensate you for what you did, but it's more just ticking a box for them to go, oh, yep, and then once you claim that money, you can't fight for what a anymore. Sure. So my mother did that and, and, and a lot of them funds went to, and we have a, a perception that Aboriginal people are lazy and, and they don't work and things like that. Aboriginal money built the state of Queensland out of that Aboriginal Benevolency Fund, they built like the, the east or the west wing of the Redcliffe Hospital. A lot of the main infrastructure in the state of Queensland was built off black, mm -hmm. black slave labour and black sweat and tears. Yeah. So, so that's a story I haven't heard. And I'm sure, you know, um, you're telling the story and I'm always about getting two sides of the story because there's always two sides of the story. So that's stuff that needs to be investigated and obviously it exists or existed. Um, the people, if they've never never heard of that, they should be asking questions because that's the injustice that people don't see. And, and if that's the experience of an Indigenous person, then it shouldn't begin, we shouldn't begin to imagine why they don't see the system as including them because that system doesn't. So that's a very powerful story. And again, thanks for sharing that. And I think that's, this is the importance is you're speaking to me and I'm discovering things I've never learned before. And that's the importance of actually being prepared to listen to someone around their upbringing, their culture. And, and everyone, like everyone has a story and that's part of what people with a passion's about so what's your motivation behind what you're actually doing and why you do it yeah uh, to share first nations perspectives and um, one of the things I, I wanted to share that i didn't share earlier is about um there, there's so just to give the broader community an understanding first nations people in australia there, there's um the way that they founded australia was actually it was built on lies so it was founded in a deceitful way uh, there's um, when they put the when the, the crown came to Australia and they put the flag down, they claimed Australia under Terra Nullius, and Terra Nullius is a term that means um, land belonging to no man. So when they surveyed the, the the shores, they said, "Oh look, there's no one here." 
they classed when they actually colonized they classed first nations people under flora and fauna which means that they were under the animals and plants and that they, they were under an act there so that they were subhuman viewed by the by the monarchy or the crown yes and so there's there's so yeah. had that have happened in any other nation, you talk about treaty. So do you want to explain? Yeah. So there's three ways um, when they colonised. There was three ways at the time that the Crown could take over land. So there was the first way was through force or through war. So they would meet with the leaders. They would, they would um, organise a, a battle and they would take it by conquest. So even if they didn't meet with the, you know, the, the elected whoever the people are of that area, but yes. they would take it via conquest through battle. I'll tell you the second way is if the, if the land is unoccupied, so it's an empty land, and that, that's how they uh, got it. There was another way, which I, I've just got a mind blank. Yeah, this is the third way via uh, agreement. Via, via treaty. Yeah, treaty. So, so they're the three ways. So when, when they colonised Australia, they said that this was land belonging to no man, and it, it was a false way. We Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, I'll speak specifically for First Nations people. We're sovereign people. Um, and so that would be like, like you say, three ways. So war. War. It would be via agreement, which is treaty. Yep. And their third way was the way they went, which is no one's living here. This is yeah. empty land. Yeah. And, and they put you under flora and fauna, which is just, a, like you say, it's deceptive because it's inaccurate. Yeah, and so why I wanted to share that with the broader audience is if you didn't know about that stuff, and if if you have that, it's internalised. So a lot of that hurt and the pain because of all the systems and the policies that were in place, like the White Australia policy and everything to, uh, you know, basically bring our people down or, or put control over the people, it's internalised. Wouldn't you have a headache if that stuff happened to you? Mm. And that's the way that a lot of our First Nations people feel. So um, I think it's what people to try and understand how Indigenous people would feel is to put themselves in that situation and you just ask the question, how would you feel if that happened to you? Yeah. That's all the question you've got to ask. But here's what, this is the bit that's missing, is not everyone knows that. And that's where the education system also fails is because it should be teaching that. By the way, I heard you go through Yundi's song back in the 90s, Treaty, and now it all makes sense. I didn't know that. I'll tell you a quick story, and this will be really, really interesting. Um, for, for the viewers at home, I, I ran a program. It was with um, an organisation that was called Living Without Violence. So I had to run a, a, a male perpetrators of violence program, and, and I was funded by the state to facilitate this program under a cultural lens to work with First Nations men who were, you know, like um, perpetrators of violence, which is a yes. sad term to put it but you know like that was the, that, that was what the funding was for and I engaged with a local man but he'd been in that in in that field of working with men uh, who, who were experiencing that that sort of um, stuff there for over 20 years but I developed a program and we had to teach a lot of that stuff so that history and a lot of the men that came there we had some men one fellow was in and out of prison for over 20 years and we had other men that were like like that. And a lot of them never knew, but they, they had a pain and, and a hurt and it was internalised. So that pain was inside. They didn't understand why. But when we did the stuff where I actually did a timeline of from colonisation and we talked about what do you think it was before pre-colonisation? 
then colonization what do you think happened and then modern day how it how it's impacted on first nations people they said oh yep in the past we had our laws our culture our medicine men our this and that yeah then when colonization happened we had a lot of genocide murders and death and you know the system was imposed on us now current day there's a view of what the first nation or what what an aboriginal man is mm. today and it's a negative view that's built up by the mainstream system in media and everything yeah so we did that and then he turned around and he goes brother sam i didn't realize this stuff and he goes you know what i have to say sorry mate and i turned around and said no nah, brother you don't have to and assertively and in a kind gesture he said no brother please it would mean a lot to me i didn't realize how deep this stuff was and how much it's impacted on your men today yeah and he said i have to say sorry and i said well if you feel that way yeah you go for it mate you know thank you and he said sorry and he apologized he said for everything that's ever happened to your people i'm so sorry mm. and there was not a dry eye in the house yeah like all, all the men were crying and we had another um she was a non-aboriginal she was actually a swedish lady who was part of that program but when that happened all our men you know and they they accepted it and they said oh yeah you know thank you right at that moment it was the pivotal point in my life where i said i turned around and said you know what brother paul this is what australia needs mm. they need this and so the way that i work now it's 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 built into me you know like i i I see the spirit of reconciliation. I, I like that movement, but there's some parts in it where people say, oh, we shouldn't reconcile because we did nothing wrong. So there's, there's that view from First Nations mm. people, but I like the education side of things but, and sharing. But here's, in, here's probably the obligation. Sorry to speak over and interrupt you, but when you say reconciliation, there's elements there where people say, we're not responsible for what our people, people have done in the past. The fact is those people aren't there to speak to it anymore and they didn't do it. So what do you do there? Yeah. So so with that, I, I believe, and, you know, First Nations people were spiritual people. And, you know, like if you have, you had like Kevin Rudd, he did the apology. That was for um, the, the stolen generation. That was what that apology was for. But the government didn't actually say, well, we admit that this nation was founded on a lie, which is that, term that I used before terra nullius land belonging to no man where our people were born in and I and you asked me earlier what's your connection to country it shows that I have an authority over that place because I have a connection to that piece of dirt and them landmarks that say I am Garua, mm. I am Bachelor and that's my country and when they came in and they said nah there, there, there was no one here that's a lie yeah so the the one thing i'd like to say to that is the thing that is said on the you know the white australian side of of the argument is is if we say sorry and there's an admission that all these indigenous people are going to want money and all these compensations because that's a legal that's how our legal system actually operates and works yeah. yep. and that's that's always been the fear that's what we we believe and that's the, the fear around it. But what you're more or less saying is, no, it's not that. It's actually about healing. And it's actually about an internal and spiritual thing that we need to know that we are recognised as the first nation of people. The, the people who, even though they're not here to speak to it and say sorry, that those that are here need to start recognising what happened and say sorry. And it's not 
saying sorry for the injustice, as that man did that you were working with, he said, no, I have to say sorry because he recognised that he didn't know that stuff. So that knowledge has turned him around to a point where he says, you know what, I, I think I have to. And, and more people might take that approach if they come to understand the perspective of an Indigenous man or woman who've, who have that history and it's not being shared. Even that within itself, it's stolen. The stories are stolen because unless we take time to listen to the stories, we're not telling them amongst ourselves. Mm. Your teen years, you said you were doing what a lot of people do is you were making some good choices and some bad choices. So your teen years, probably your feeling might not have been on the straight and narrow at all, at all times. If I can, is that an accurate assessment? Yeah. You're getting yep. into mischief, yep. which a lot of young people do, Indigenous or not. It's how you challenge the world. It's the teen years, let's face it. But then you've arrived at boxing, you said, late at around age 20. So what was the turning point? What got you into boxing? Uh, the turning point was, uh, so you said I look young. I'm actually a grandfather too, so I was a young parent. Mm. And when my daughter came along, uh, she was born... Uh, when myself and my wife were the same age, but we were 20, so we were young parents. And when she come along, I said, no, you know, like there needs to be some changes here in my life. So uh, boxing gave me an avenue to do that. Okay, so you saw your life change because you became a family man and there was someone more important in your life now than you. So you recognise the responsibility that goes with having a child. So how... Was that a shock to you and the system, uh, recognising now you have responsibility for another life? Yeah, definitely. Um, but I had to make shifts, and and um, I, I did it the best way I could. Yes. Um, but just being exposed to boxing, it, it gave me another... Um, you, you had different social networks and different people that spoke about different things. So when I was in that troubled time in my life, you don't hear hear the same stories. Oh, sure. who's doing this? Who's doing what? But then when when my daughter came along, uh, that all had to had to change, and I made that choice. Yeah, so so that's about choice too. That's an important and powerful word to use. Is that you made a change? So change doesn't happen unless you change something. Yeah, and and you recognise that. So with the uh, coming along of your daughter, you embark on that journey of, of fighting, which we said you had 90 fights in your amateur career. You've had a couple of uh, professional fights. Do you want to speak to your experience and the difference between amateur and professional? Yeah. Uh, amateur, look, I love the amateur game. I still hold it uh, highly. Um, and for me, the pinnacle is amateur boxing, you know, like reaching an international level or in that sport um, so I always hold amateur boxing high uh, which is why I, I put time and effort into my young people that that I'm trying to train up now um, so you you actually run a gym now so called boss boxing how important understanding that social network that you needed when you came to boxing you realized that the circle of friends that you had growing up as a teenager and then having a child and making that change, all of a sudden the whole conversations were changing and the whole perspective of the world changes as you changed your group. So do you see that translating into what you're doing with your gym, having these kids come in from that same sort of environment where they're getting certain conversations, 
to an environment where now they're getting some more positive conversation. Yeah, definitely. And it's part of our strategy and our structure within the way that we frame our, our program. So we run it, we get um, community people involved. We, we'll also get other external agencies involved. Um, on Mondays to our community warrior class, we, we have one of the local agencies, um, Relationships Australia. They'll have a worker, cultural worker that'll come out and be, be around. So there's referral pathways to people who wanna do, you know, like, who needs support, who we identify along the way. So it's there, but you don't wanna, we also don't wanna just, we focus on our First Nations people and our community. We wanna share that culture with others. So we don't just focus specifically on ours, but we use our frameworks when yeah. we share our culture with everyone so, else. So by having it open to others, it's it's allowing that interchange and exchange of ideas and conversations among indigenous culture, as well as, um, Australians, you know, white Australians or whoever else may be coming. It's not yeah. just Australians. Yeah. So it's it's people who have moved here from other countries. It's yep. it's it's uh, like it should be more or less. Is it's open and and everything's shared. Yeah, and I look at the um, the frameworks, and th this is some of the stuff that we share. You know, like in my uh, in my workplace with upskilling of staff. So we we come from a collectivist, and if you look at it in this way, like you'll have the so individualist versus collectivist society. Individualist, you can look at it like a pyramid like that, so a triangle or a pyramid, and it'll filter from you know a couple at the top that make the decisions and filter it down. Whereas you flip it upside down, and this is the framework that we work off, and we try to introduce into the boss boxing where it's a communal yes. and the collective. Yes. And that'll be you know all of our community that'll make decisions and we filter it down. It's sort of like a democracy, you know? like. Mm. A, uh, the way it should be functioning. <laughs> yeah, that's a, yeah, the way it should be functioning, exactly. So so you probably talk yourself down a little bit because you actually have done some pro fights and you go, oh, I really didn't do that much. But you did get a state title. So that that's not everyone's going to have one of those sitting somewhere in their house. So what was that experience for you, the pro, which I did ask earlier, what's the difference you see between pro fights and amateur? Where's the Where's the level up? occur okay uh so the level up is in in um i don't i don't even know sometimes i i, I think it's a level down like yeah. i just like like in the amateurs if if you're the australian champion or the world champion there's still politics involved but you've got to claw your way through and you've got to win all of them fights to make it all the way through so there'll be preliminaries and then you know like you go through all very the, structured yeah, and so to win, you got to win. Yes. There's still the stuff of dodgy refing and stuff like that, or, or um, you know, decisions, yeah, dodgy decisions and stuff, stuff yeah. like that. But Which happens in that, every sport, by the way. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, you, but you still got to win. You've yes. got to make your way through and then make it and win the final. But in the professional ranks, you can pick, pick who you fight, you know, and if you have a good management team behind you, your whole path can be if you're someone that they believe in and they want to put time and effort into you, your your, your pathway can be mapped out for you. Mm. And like I'm licensed to take on professional fighters if, if we wish, but at the moment we've only got a small cohort, maybe five that want to actually compete. Yes. And then we've got one where we've got him to the level, like the fitness and the strength level and the skill level to be able to compete. He's had a one fight for one win 
and now he's fighting this weekend in the Southeast Queensland uh, title. So yeah. I'll give a shout out to John Lee. Mm-hmm. And good luck, mate, this this weekend. Um, uh, down the track, it would be good to see how, uh, and even speak to some of your fighters after they've had a few more fights and see where boss boxing actually um, ends up in a, in a year or two. So stay connected and we'll do this all again sometime. And I uh, appreciate your time and sharing your culture. And I, I just leave you with the last word. Is there anything that you would like to add or that you would like to say to you know, people who are Indigenous that you think would be of value to them if they're at a moment in their life where they're trying to make a decision around changing something because they're in a bad situation, what would your advice be to them? What should what should you think they should be doing? Yeah, uh, I just want to say out there to any of our um, First Nations people out there, the system may, may class you or have a view of who you are and... and how they view what what they think that you should be but i i just put it to you to find out for yourself you know meet with your elders meet with your community and understand that you you're not the problem um, this system is built up that's uh, been oppressive and it's time for our people to take control and, and i look at self-determination so it's with our our gym the boss boxing that we teach self-determination and we don't want to be like governed by the government or anyone else. We want to make our own decisions around who we are as people and build up our own communities and, and also share our culture with others. So if that can inspire you to chase and find out who you are and, and what you're about, then um, I'm all for that. Contact me if you need to speak about that. If I can help in any way, I will. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for your time, Sammy Leone. I really do appreciate you giving your time to share this valuable and these valuable stories um, to to everyone who happens to check out uh, People With A Passion. Make sure if you've enjoyed this interview that you subscribe and give it a thumbs up. And if you've got anything you'd like to say, make sure you put a comment in the comments below. We'll also put up your information in the description so people can connect with you. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. Catch you later. Thanks for taking time to watch this video. If you enjoyed what you saw, please give it a thumbs up. If you haven't yet subscribed, make sure you smash that subscribe button and also hit the bell button to get notified when new interviews are uploaded. Once again, thanks for joining us and hopefully we'll see you again sometime. Catch you later.